Shalom, Nishpocha. Welcome to part two of this Kadima podcast, Building Warriors, Making Sheepdogs. We must be motivated by humility. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4. Do nothing out of rivalry or vanity, but in humility regard each other as better than yourselves. Don't compare what God has called you to do with what he's called someone else to do. They're all different parts of the body. That's the gravest mistake we make in the kingdom of God. We look somewhere else and say, I want to be just like that person. You don't want to be like that person. You want to be who you are in Messiah and do exactly what he told you to do. If it's a one-talent ministry or a four-talent ministry, whatever it is, do so with joy, do so in humility, and serve him. Verse 4, Philippians 2 says, look out for each other's interests and not just your own. Remember, we're community. And we must be motivated by love. Galatians 5, verse 13, For brothers, you were called to be free. Only do not let that freedom become an excuse for allowing your old nature to have its way. Instead, serve one another in love. You don't have to be brilliant or gifted to serve. You just need to be willing and take action. Colossians 2, verses 23 through 24, Whatever work you do, put yourself into it. I love that. Put yourself into it. Get into it as those who are serving not merely other people, but the Lord. Remember that as your reward, you will receive the inheritance from the Lord. You are slaving for the Lord, for the Messiah. And 1 Timothy 8, verse 8, Moreover, anyone who does not provide for his own people, especially for his family, has disowned the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You know, uh, I got to pause here for a second. I know a lot of great, strong people of God that work and support their families and their testimony Uh, to the kingdom of God. But I've had a lot of people over the years that have come in and uh, come to find out they haven't worked for three or four months. They're seven or $8,000 behind in all their bills. And I asked them, hey, you know, what? first of all, why did you wait 90 or 120 days to come talk to us? And second of all, what have you done for work in the meantime? Listen, you'd be shocked at the excuses I've heard. Well, there there was this one job, but they wanted me to work Saturday afternoons and uh, you know, I wasn't going to work Shabbat or, hey, man, you know, I'm not working at McDonald's. Hey, that's, you know, listen, honest work is not beneath anybody ever. Most of my military career, you're not getting rich in serving the country. My entire 22 years, wherever I was stationed, I picked up part-time work, secondhand jobs to continue feeding and clothing my family to make sure that they had all that they needed. If I had to do so right now, I would work two or three jobs. There's no work demeaning or beneath me. There's nothing. Let me tell you, as a 22-year submarine veteran, there is nothing I have never done. And if I started telling you the stories right now, you wouldn't believe it. There's nothing beneath me. I will do anything the Lord asks me to do to provide for my family, to not be disavowed of the faith, and to be labeled as an unbeliever. It's hard work reflecting the kingdom of God. But in the end, Discipline develops excellence. We should do all things with the spirit of excellence. In fact, that's Rabitzin's key statement. We need to serve him with the spirit of excellence. So I want to talk about 11 keys to excellence. Psalms 78, verse 72. With upright heart, he'll shepherd them and guided them with skillful hands. Upright heart or true heart is integrity. He shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart. This is a leader of character and integrity. David's leadership succeeded through a two-sided coin. Heads up, he wins. Tails, he wins. Whoa, why? Because his hands and his heart 
for his skill and his integrity. It's a win-win for David. David's unmatched leadership abilities combined with both heart and art. Matter of fact, his first weapons of warfare were what? Worship. It was a harp out in the fields. To have one without the other leads to failure. Let's look at a list of 11 keys to excellence that are aimed at developing the same level of skills and integrity that David held, and we can have this within us. Like I said, value excellence. Do all things with a spirit of excellence. Colossians 3, verse 23, whatever work you do, put yourself into it. I mean, we just said this, but I love this. Put yourself into it as those who are serving not merely other people, but the Lord. Number two, don't settle for average. We have a saying when I was in the military, uh, you know, it's good enough for government work, but that's not good enough for the kingdom of God. He deserves excellence. Second Peter 1.5, so make every effort to apply the benefits of these promises to your life. Then your faith will produce a life of moral excellence. A life of moral excellence leads to knowing God better. Did you get that? If you don't settle for average and you seek the excellent of the kingdom of God, if you do so with a spirit of excellence, it leads to knowing God better. You'll have a deeper, more intimate relationship with Adonai if you seek and do all things with a spirit of excellence. Number three, and I, and I got to admit, I'm going to be transparent. I, I, this is one of my weaknesses. So I uh, surround myself with people who pay attention to detail. Number three, pay attention to detail in every aspect of our lives. I tend to be more of a uh, looking ahead four or five years. But because I know it's a weakness, I surround myself with people who are detailed that as a team, we overcome and are victorious. Matthew 25, verse 21, his master said to him, excellent, you're a good and trustworthy servant. You have been faithful with a small amount, so I'll put you in charge of a large amount. Come and join in your master's happiness. Number four, remain committed to what matters. We talked about this a little earlier because a lazy person won't do that. Remain committed to what matters. Mark 12, starting at verse 28, one of the Torah teachers came up and heard them engage in this discussion. Seeing that Yeshua answered them well, they asked him, What's the most important mitzvah of them all? And Yeshua answered, The most important is Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your understanding, and with all your strength. You've got to remain committed to the first love, to what really matters. Number five, display integrity and sound ethics. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 17, I know also, my God, that you test the heart and take pleasure in integrity. As for myself, I've given all these things willingly in the integrity of my heart, and now with joy I've seen your people who are present here give willingly to you. Psalms 101, verse 6, I look to the faithful of the land so that they can be my companions. Those who live lives of integrity give as servants of mind. And you know, our, our ethics, this, this is why we're having such a grave issue in our nation today because we've separated ourselves from our biblical foundations, and we no longer have sound biblical ethics. There's chapter after chapter about personal relationship. There's chapter after chapter about business owners. It says, pay your worker the wages when they're due. And, and if we go through all these things, we're, we're not to have tainted weights. We're not to cheat each other. We're not to lie. We're not to steal from each other. And the farther away we draw away from God, the more critical immorality we see in our nation and in our society today. So as people of God, we need to be and model integrity and sound ethics in all that we do. Number six, so genuine respect for others. 
Romans 12, verse 10, love each other devotedly and with brotherly love and set examples for each other in showing respect. Number seven, go the second mile. So many don't stay long enough to finish the race. And, uh, you know, I've said this many times. This is a sobering statistic. 90% of people will stop when they're within 10% of the goal. Go that extra mile. 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Number eight, demonstrate consistency. This is what the world finds unbelieving about us. We're not consistent. Believers will say one thing and act one way in their places of congregation and do something else completely different outside of the body of Messiah when they're in the world. What we say and what we do cannot be two different things. They have to be one in the same. Acts 26, verse 20 says, On the contrary, I announced first in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout Judah, and also to the nations of the Goim, that they should turn from their sins to God and then do deeds consistent with that repentance. Shaul sharing here that no matter where he went, he did the same thing consistently everywhere he went. Number nine, and this is critical. I shared this earlier about leadership. Never stop improving. Because the minute you stop improving, you stop growing. Someone else is in charge. You're not. Jeremiah 7, verse 3, here's what Adonai, Seva Oat, the God of Israel, says, improve your ways and actions, and I will let you stay in this place. This is phenomenal for true heavenly leadership. You must keep growing and improving in your ways, and if you do so, he says, I will let you stay in this place. Number 10, always give 100%. Psalms 86, verse 12, I will thank you, Adonai, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Matthew 16, verse 24, Then Yeshua told his Talmudim, If anyone wants to come after me, let him say no to himself, take up his execution stake, and keep following me. We've got to be committed. We've got to give 100% every day. You know, I often share this. Young people will come and seek my advice before they join the military. And, hey, you know, I'm going to be frank. I'm going to be honest here. It's not that hard. Listen, if you maintain the minimum, if you just do what they say, be where they tell you to be, and dress how they tell you to dress, you will quickly move through the ranks and have a successful career. But if you'll give that 101%, that 102%, when they need something done, you say, don't worry, I will do it. They will give and heap upon you uh, more opportunities to lead and more accountability, and you will really move up through the ranks very quick. If you just put in that extra you know, put in that extra mile, that extra one or 2%, you will soar in the kingdom of God as with eagle's wings. And number 11, make excellence a lifestyle. Do everything that you do in a spirit of excellence. Second Peter 1, 3, God's power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowing the one who called us to his own glory and goodness. And the American standard is this, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. I love that translation. So this has to be a lifestyle, not something we do on Shabbat, not something we do in our prayer time, but excellence is something that we need to pursue every day of our lives. And all of this brought together for one purpose and one purpose only. Why is that? Because radical times requires radical people. And it's time for us as warriors of God to get radical and start taking back what the enemy has stolen. We're at the time of the wedding and the war. We're in peculiar and unique times that requires us to be warriors, to be sheepdogs in the kingdom. And I want to read this by an author, an ex-Lieutenant Colonel, Dave Grossman. 
uh, author of On Killing, a book that I've read. Uh, I've had a lot of training and desire to work with uh, post-deployed combat military personnel. And uh, this is one of our required readings. And uh, this is a phenomenal letter that I want to share and close out our Kadima podcast with this. And uh, this is going to be a keeper. You're going to come back and keep listening to this. Again, this is by Lieutenant Colonel retired Dave Grossman, author of On Killing, who's done great work and inroads in helping our returning combat veterans reacclimate to normal lifestyle. One Vietnam veteran, an old retired colonel, once said this to me. Most of the people in our society are sheep. They're kind. They're gentle. Productive creatures who can only hurt one another by accident. This is true. Remember, the murder rate is 6 per 100,000 per year. The aggravated assault rate is 4 per 1,000 per year. What this means is that the vast majority of Americans are not inclined to hurt one another. Some estimates say that 2 million Americans are victims of violent crimes each year. It's a tragic, staggering number, perhaps an all-time record rate of violent crime. Yet there are over 350 million Americans which means that the odds of being a victim of violent crime is considerably less than 1 in 100 on any given year. Furthermore, since many violent crimes are committed by repeat offenders, the actual number of violent citizens is considerably less than 2 million. Thus, there is a paradox. We must grasp both ends of the situation. We may well be in the most violent times in history, but violence is still remarkably rare. And this is because most citizens are kind, decent people who are not capable of hurting each other except by accident or under extreme provocation. They are sheep. And I mean nothing negative by calling them sheep. To me, it's like the pretty blue robin's eggs. Inside, it's all soft and gooey, but someday it'll grow into something wonderful. But the egg cannot survive without its hard blue shell. Police officers, soldiers, and other warriors are like that shell. And someday the civilization they protect will grow into something wonderful. For now, though, they need warriors to protect them from the predators. Then there are the wolves, the old war veteran said. And the wolves feed on the sheep without mercy. Do you believe there are wolves out there who will feed on the flock without mercy? You better believe it. There are evil men in this world and they are capable of evil deeds. The moment you forget that or pretend that it's not so, you become a sheep. There's no safety in denial. Then there are the sheep dogs, he went on, and I'm a sheep dog. I live to protect the flock and confront the wolf. If you have no capacity for violence, then you're a healthy, productive citizen, a sheep. If you have a capacity for violence and no empathy for your fellow citizens, then you have defined an aggressive sociopath, a wolf. But what if you have a capacity for violence and a deep love for your fellow citizens? What do you have then? A sheepdog, a warrior, someone who is walking the hero's path, someone who can walk into the heart of darkness, into the universal human phobia, and walk out unscathed. Let me expand on this old soldier's excellent model of the sheep, wolves, and sheepdogs. We know that the sheep live in denial. That is what makes them sheep. They do not want to believe that there is evil in the world. They can accept the fact that fires can happen which is why they want fire extinguishers and fire sprinklers and fire alarms and fire exits throughout their kids' schools. But many of them are outraged at the idea of putting an armed police officer in their kid's school. Our children are thousands of times more likely to be killed or seriously injured by school violence than fire. But the sheep's only response to the possibility of violence is denial. 
the idea of someone coming to kill or harm their child is just too hard, and so they choose the path of denial. And the sheep generally don't like the sheepdog. He looks a lot like the wolf. He has fangs and a capacity for violence. The difference, though, is that the sheepdog must not, cannot, and will not ever harm the sheep. Any sheepdog who intentionally harms the lowliest little lamb will be punished and removed. The world cannot work any other way, at least not in a representative democracy or a republic such as ours. Still, the sheepdog disturbs the sheep. He's a constant reminder that there are wolves in the land. They'd prefer that he didn't tell them where to go or give them traffic tickets or stand at the ready in our airports and camouflage fatigues holding an M-16. The sheep would much rather have the sheepdog cash in his fangs, spray paint himself white, and go, bah, until the wolf shows up. Then the entire flock tries desperately to hide behind one lonely sheepdog. The students, the victims of Columbine High School, they were big, tough high school students, and under ordinary circumstances, they would have not had the time of day for a police officer. They were not bad kids. They just had nothing to say to a cop. When the school was under attack, however, and SWAT teams were clearing the rooms and hallways, the officers had to physically peel those clinging, sobbing kids off of them. This is how the little lambs feel about their sheepdog when the wolf's at the door. Look what happened after September 11, 2001, when the wolf pounded hard on the door. Remember how America, more than ever, felt differently about their law enforcement officers and military personnel. Remember how many times you heard the word hero? Understand that there is nothing morally superior about being a sheepdog. It's just what you choose to be. Also understand that a sheepdog is a funny critter. He's always sniffing around out on the perimeter, checking the breeze, barking at things that go bump in the night, and yearning for a righteous battle. That is, the young sheepdogs yearn for a righteous battle. The old sheepdogs are a little older and wiser, but they move to the sound of the guns when needed right along with the young ones. This is how the sheep and the sheepdog think differently. The sheep pretend the wolf will never come, but the sheepdog lives for that day. After the attacks of September 11, 2001, most of the sheep, that is, most citizens in America said, thank God I wasn't on one of those planes. The sheepdogs, the warriors said, dear God, I wish I could have been on one of those planes. Maybe I could have made a difference. When you're truly transformed into a warrior and have truly invested yourself into warriorhood, you want to be there. You want to be able to make a difference. There's nothing morally superior about the sheepdog, the warrior, but he does have one real advantage, only one, and that is he is able to survive and thrive in an environment that destroys 98% of the population. There was research conducted a few years ago with individuals convicted of violent crimes these cons were in prison for serious predatory crimes of violence, assaults, murders, and killing law enforcement officers. The vast majority that they specifically targeted victims were body language, slumped walk, passive behavior, lack of awareness. They chose their victims like big cats do in Africa when they select one out of the herd that is least able to protect themselves. Some people may be destined to be sheep and others might be genetically primed to be wolves or sheepdogs. But I believe that most people can choose which one they want to be, and I'm proud to say that more and more Americans are choosing to become sheepdogs. Seven months after the attack on September 11, 2001, Todd Beamer was honored in his hometown of Cranberry, New Jersey. Todd, as you recall, was the man of Flight 93 over Pennsylvania who called in a cell phone to alert an operator from United Airlines about the hijacking. When he learned of the other three passenger planes that had been used as weapons, Todd dropped his phone and under the words, Let's roll which authorities believe was a signal to the other passengers to confront the terrorist hijackers. 
In one hour, a transformation occurred among the passengers, athletes, business people, and parents, from sheep to sheepdogs, and together they fought the wolves, ultimately saving an unknown number of lives on the ground. Edmund Burke said there's no safety for honest men except by believing all possible evil of evil men. Here's a point I'd like to emphasize, especially to the thousands of police officers and soldiers I speak to each year. In nature, the sheep, real sheep, are born as sheep. Sheepdogs are born that way, and so are wolves. They didn't have a choice. But you're not a critter. As a human being, you can do whatever you want to be. It's a conscious, moral decision. If you want to be a sheep, then you can be a sheep. That's okay. But you must understand the price you pay. When the wolf comes, you and your loved ones are going to die if there's not a sheepdog there to protect you. If you want to be a wolf, you can be one. But the sheepdogs are going to hunt you down, and you'll never have rest, safety, trust, or love. But if you want to be a sheepdog and walk the warrior's path, then you must make a conscious and moral decision every day to dedicate, equip, and prepare yourselves to thrive in that toxic, corrosive moment when the wolf comes knocking at the door. For example, many officers carry their weapons in church. They're well-concealed in ankle holsters, shoulder holsters, or inside the belt holsters tucked into the small of their backs. Anytime you go to some form of religious service, there's a very good chance that a police officer is in your congregation is carrying. You'll never know if there is such an individual in your place of worship until the wolf appears to massacre you and your loved ones. I was training a group of police officers in Texas, and during the break, one officer asked his friends if he carried his weapon in church. The other cop replied, I will never be caught without my gun in church. And I asked why he felt so strongly about this. And he told me about a cop he knew who was at a church massacre in Fort Worth, Texas in 1999. In that incident, a mentally deranged individual came into the church and opened fire, gunning down 14 people. He said that the officer believed he could have saved every life that day if he'd been carrying his gun. His own son was shot, and all he could do was throw himself on the boy's body and wait to die. That cop looked me in the eye and said, do you have any idea how hard it would be to live with yourself after that? Some individuals would be horrified if they knew this police officer was carrying a weapon in church. They might call him paranoid and would probably scorn him. Yet these same individuals would be enraged and would call for heads to roll if they found out that the airbags in their car were defective or that the fire extinguisher and fire sprinklers in their kid's school didn't work. They can accept the fact that fires and traffic accidents can happen and that there must be safeguards against them. Their only response to the wolf, though, is denial, and all too often the response of the sheepdog is scorn and disdain. But the sheepdog quietly asks himself, do you have any idea how hard it would be to live with yourself if your loved ones attacked and killed and you had to stand there helplessly because you were unprepared for that day? It's denial that turned people into sheep. Sheep are psychologically destroyed by combat because their only defense is denial, which is counterproductive and destructive, resulting in fear, helplessness, and horror when the wolf shows up. Denial kills you twice. It kills you once at your moment of truth when you're not physically prepared. You didn't bring your gun. You didn't train. Your only defense was wishful thinking. Hope is not a strategy. Denial kills you a second time because even if you do physically survive, you're psychologically shattered by your fear, helplessness, and horror at your moment of truth. Gavin DeBecker puts it like this. In Fearless, his superb post-9-11 book, which should be required reading for anyone trying to come to terms with our current world situation, denial can be seductive, but it has an insidious side effect. For all the peace of mind deniers think they get by saying it isn't so, the fall they take when faced with new violence is all the more unsettling. Denial is a save-now-pay-later scheme, a contract written entirely in small print, for in the long run, the denying person knows the truth on some level. 
And so the warrior must strive to confront denial in all aspects of his life and prepare himself for the day when evil comes. If you're a warrior who is legally authorized to carry a weapon and you step outside without that weapon, then you become a sheep, pretending that the bad man will not come today. No one can be on 24-7 for a lifetime. Everyone needs downtime. But if you're authorized to carry a weapon and you walk outside without it, just take a deep breath and say this to yourself. Bah. Since 9-11, almost everyone in America took a step up that continuum away from denial. The sheep took a few steps toward accepting and appreciating their warriors, and the warriors started taking their job more seriously. The degree to which you move up that continuum away from sheephood and denial is the degree to which you and your loved ones will survive physically and psychologically at your moment of truth. Mishpacha, I know that this was talking about police officers and warriors, but the same holds true for the body of Messiah. We can no longer be in denial and pretend things that are unfolding around us aren't happening. We're streaming towards that great and terrible day of the Lord. Are you prepared? Will you be a warrior and a sheepdog, or will you be a sheep? The choice is yours. May the Lord bless you and keep you.